From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. This morning, we talk with the team from Monterey Technologies, a Park City-based, user-centered engineering design firm that makes organizations more efficient and effective in the areas of human engineering, mission planning, systems engineering, and software development. They are here to share with us some of their latest developments and work with companies that include NASA and military organizations. Then we're joined by Dr. Aaron Rothwell, the Vice President for Research at the University of Utah, who will talk about the university's Pivot Center. It serves as a catalyst for economic development and technology commercialization through connecting the University of Utah's faculty and inventors with investors and entrepreneurs in Utah. That sounded like a mouthful. It was, but it's really interesting stuff. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words from our underwriters. You're listening to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. Well, Park City is known for our skiing, golfing, films, and even the Olympics. But Park City is also becoming a mountain mecca for tech firms. And Monterey Technologies is certainly one of the bigger. Monterey Technologies is a user-centered engineering design firm that makes organizations more efficient and effective in the areas of human engineering, mission planning, systems engineering, and software development. They work with NASA, the Air Force, Navy, Army, to name a few. Well, joining us to tell us more about Monterey Technologies and their vast scope of projects are Ben Schwartz, the Director of Human Engineering, Lauren Rohde, the Senior User Experience Designer, and Gary Loberg, the Director of Business Development. Ben, Lauren, and Gary, welcome to Cool Science Radio. It's great to have you. Hey, it's great to be here. Hi, thanks for having us. Well, it's interesting, Ben, I'll start with you when you read this thing called human engineering. Of course, that's what you do, so you know what it's all about. It sounds like some really bizarre genetic engineering. <laughs> it's not that at all. What is human engineering? Yeah, so human engineering is fascinating. I really enjoy it. Um, it's an interdisciplinary uh, field where we get to pull in human factors engineering and psychology and physiology and technology to design systems that are the most efficient and effective for users. Well, it involves deep user empathy, understanding their mission, what do they need to do with the system and the technology, and how do we design it to maximize their effectiveness. So you do this across a wide scope of all kinds of different projects. And I always think back to that company, I think I always think of it IDEO, because I saw a documentary on yeah. it. And they do, you know, this sort of human engineering and they also say design thinking is right. part of this. And so, but how you apply it to what you all do, especially with the Depar Department of Defense, is it, are you able to give us sort of a mission statement that is user-friendly? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so I talk about designing complex systems to deliver better mission outcomes. So our users are doing really complex things. They're controlling power plants or fighter jets or, uh, you know, um, just really advanced technologies, autonomous systems. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing those in really complex mission environments where there's a lot of different things going on, right? If you think of an aircraft pilot, right, they are controlling all the different systems of the aircraft, understanding what each does, uh, prepared to respond to emergencies. Uh, they're interfacing with air traffic control and the, the uh, you know, their co-pilot and their flight attendants. It's a really complex situation. And so um, designing all those aspects, that systems thinking and design thinking is really important to understand all these different moving parts and how each user fits in there and what we can do to maximize their efficiency and effectiveness. So there's a lot to it, um, but it's really, really interesting. If you're just joining us on Cool Cool Science Radio. Our guests are Lauren Rohde, Benjamin Schwartz, and Gary Loberg. They are the team from Monterey Technologies Incorporated. Well, Gary, how did Monterey Technologies get started? I'm asking you this because you're the business development, so I'm assuming you're more in tune to the Yeah, those are part of my standard talking points, right? <laughs> so uh, Monterey Technologies was formed about 40 years ago. Some uh, cognitive psychologists coming out of Naval Postgraduate School, um, which is in Monterey, 
right? And for the first, oh, probably 15, 20 years, that's where the company was based. And as ownership shifted over time, uh, one of the guys, you know, it resided with one individual and he said, I like skiing better than I like golf. So he moved the company here to Park City. And it's been here uh, ever since. So we're, we're distributed all over the place in terms of where we execute work. But the headquarters is here in town. And uh, we've had a couple of other sites where we wind up providing direct support to, to government customers. Well, and so much of your, t your team's background is very, very broad because it's such a uh, diverse set of tools that are needed to create these human-based, human factors, engineering. Lauren, I know that you're... One of your passions, in addition to engineering, is art. How do you incorporate your role as an engineer and a designer with art into what you do for Monterey? Yeah, definitely. I think everybody that ends up in this field kind of has a winding path getting there. And uh, my undergraduate degree is a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Graphic Design. So definitely an interesting kind of shift from core art into engineering. But I kind of tell everybody that engineering is um, a creative discipline on its own, and that creativity is really helpful for sparking those new ideas and having that diversity in everybody in the company just brings in all these great new ideas and different ways of doing it. So um, there's a lot of kind of artistry that goes into the interface design that I'm heavily involved in, um, but I think also just in engineering itself, you gotta get creative with solutions. I know um, one great story I saw in a documentary was um, launching a telescope that people went to the dollar store and got tinfoil and that was one of the resources they used to help finish the telescope and launched it successfully so it's helpful well lauren since you're going back in history a bit let's go back to the apollo mission <laughs> and i know that people can people really they love to talk about the apollo mission right yeah and one of the really interesting uh, applications of human engineering is, gosh, how are those astronauts going to go to the bathroom? <laughs> Tell yes. us about that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I know um, space travel is one of the kind of core uh, disciplines um, that human factors has really made a huge impact in. Um, and there's a fun story I like to tell about um, fighter jets as well, is as women entered the military and started being able to be in those roles as well um, as pilots of fighter jets, they're built slightly differently and you still have to account for all of the same human um, needs that you do as space travel where you've got to eat, you've got to go to the bathroom somewhere and it may not be something that everybody loves to talk about, but um, that was a similar thing that happened in fighter jets where they had to um, look at how you fit into the cockpit and um, the way that they had engineered uh, it for men to be able to go to the bathroom, they had to switch it and do the same thing for women. And that applies to space travel as well. Yeah, that's so interesting. And so Ben, you are the one who kinds, kind of comes up with the idea about what we need to do to either you know, make it easier to go to the bathroom when you're in space or how we function in our t autonomous cars. And then you pass the idea on to Lauren and Lauren kind of desi designs it or comes up with a prototype. Yeah. T tell us more about your process. It's a team effort for sure. I definitely don't want to take uh, any uh, additional credit than more than is due um, because we've got it's a great interdisciplinary team. We've got cognitive psychologists, we've got UX and visual design and human factors and software and systems engineering. And so the way we approach uh, a problem, you know, kind of sometimes varies based on the exact domain and the problem, but the core of it really is user empathy, going to engage with the users, observing how they accomplish your mission and, and get their job done trying to understand what their pain points are and what the new technology is available and how we could incorporate that to improve their workflows and their processes. And so we're pulling in the right experts at the right time that can provide that, uh, you know, that expert point of view and design the right solution. Um, and so that's the, the best part for me is being able to work with these great experts who uh, can, can really contribute to designing the best solution that really meets the user's needs and, and helps them accomplish their missions. Well, you talk about Monterey Technologies, and one of the things you say that you work on is trying to understand human issues to help recommend technological solutions. Uh, I guess, Ben, you could answer this. What are some of the common human issues that you encounter? Yeah, so one of the big things that we're working on right now is human autonomy interaction. There's a lot of work being done to design autonomous cars, uh, autonomous wingmen for military applications, um, uh, all sorts of kind of advanced technologies and, and how we uh, apply those. 
and no system really is truly autonomous, right? It doesn't come out of the factory and start operating and accomplishing their mission. There's a human in the loop uh, assigning the mission, managing and monitoring, making key decisions in that uh, mission process, and um, the designing the way that the human interacts with that autonomy is really, really important so that the human has good situation awareness, they understand what the autonomy is doing and can trust that the autonomy is doing the right thing at the right time, and can really use it to help uh, accomplish their mission so that that autonomous system becomes like a teammate and not another piece of technology that the user has to manage and, and have their head down dealing with, you know, this, you know, autonomous capability. Well, Gary, your background is in the military and that's its own very complex system on, in, on its own. How do you, what do you bring in from the military into this organization? So a significant portion of our company is actually former veterans. Um, I myself spent uh, 23 years as a Marine Corps officer and aviator. So uh, aviation uh, draws a lot from this sort of discipline, right? Uh, aviators wind up running up what we would call task saturation in the, in the cockpit as you have to shed tasks uh, as you're executing whatever you're doing in whatever environment. In my case, it was flying very low, dark, and you know, folks shooting at you. Um, so the systems that Monterey Technologies will look at uh, either helping design or the process of what I had to do in the aircraft, they'll map that out and go, what do you have to do at a particular point in time in a particular point in space? And how do we make sure that the right information gets to the operator uh, at that point? Um, all of us, you know, if, you're, if you've got uh, your software up, you'll take a look at the drop-down menus, and it was designed by somebody. It made sense to that person, but that person was probably a software engineer, right? And it doesn't always make the same sense to you as the user. That's what Monterey Technologies specializes in, is making the system that I'm inter interfacing with make sense to me at the right point in time and the right point in space. Yeah, so it's really interesting. You know, there are people out there who complain about uh, the the budget for NASA and the federal budget and also for the military and I'm my question surrounds you know the applications that you all are coming up with for a lot of military applications how does that transfer into you know everyday life like with autonomous cars as as we talked about mm -hmm. or you know any of those sorts of things do is there application into civilian life there, uh, there almost always is right uh, the the funny part is when you talk about uh, government systems military systems the way that the government buys and identifies you uh, those systems and implement usability is not the same as it is in the commercial sector. So if you're selling something to a, a user in a commercial space, if the user experience isn't really good, that's a competitive disadvantage. The way that military systems are defined uh, from success rates has to do more with um, you know how many targets you can track, what frequencies you can manage, and it's, they don't marry the human to the system until after some buy decisions have already been made. So we're, as a company, we're an investment in making sure that the system that's delivered uh, produces a better mission outcome for the end user. And then that can all, in the much farther downstream path, uh, flow to you know, commercial and, and public uh, use. Mm -hmm. We're speaking with representatives from Monterey Technologies, now based here in Park City and a very interesting company. Ben, I, I, someone mentioned a few minutes ago about you know, just the ease of using things and how often if things aren't intuitive and don't match what we think is an easy way to use things. And specifically, I'm thinking of this new truck my husband just <laughs> bought. And when I'm driving it, I cannot control the air conditioning or the heat because it's so, it's just not user friendly, right. I think. And so, you know, my, and of course, I would utter these words, you know, oh, an engineer must have put this together or something. So how do you solve those problems? Yeah. How do you attempt? I, I bet they put everything on a touchscreen in that car. No, actually, it's not a touchscreen, which I almost wish it, it were, but I don't know, maybe that has its own problems. Yeah. Um, 
you know, when we touchscreens are are a common thing that that get brought up because they give you a lot of flexibility. Valve screen real estate, re, screen real estate, and the ability to design really interesting interfaces. Um, but it gives that designer uh, a lot of opportunity to uh, experiment and try different things, and it. it Kind of can bring you on a path where you design something because it looks cool and not because it's necessarily the most functional. Um, and so that is uh, something that comes up pretty often. And it's an interesting part of our user experience design uh, approach, right? Because we want to make things that look good, that give the user trust that they, you know, what they're commanding the system to do is being accepted and the system is doing what, they've, what they want it to do, even if it's something as simple as turning up the heat when it's snowing outside. Um, and so, yeah, understanding what the things that the user is going to do, what's common, what they have to be able to get to quickly, and how we design that interface to allow them to, in the case of a car, keep their eyes on the road and very quickly be able to make those adjustments to, you know, the climate control and the infotainment system. Um, and it, it, you know, it seems like it's common sense because everybody has a car, everybody does that every day. But when you put uh, some real thought into how are different people going to use the system? Because everybody wants to interact with their cars in different ways, right? Some people are going to be listening to satellite radio. Others are going to be listening to, you know, uh, broadcast radio. Other people want podcasts. Uh, different people have different goals for climate control. Uh, I know I personally like to control every little knob and dial, and my wife just wants to press the auto button, right? <laughs> so accommodating all these different use cases um, it's all, and, and making it intuitive for all these different use cases uh, is harder than you might think. <laughs> well, Lauren, how is the this design systems evolving because you think back in the past when you would create a new system you'd have to build a prototype you'd bring a few people in you throw a few ta crash test dummies against a wall <laughs> that doesn't seem like a very practical way to develop new processes because especially as things are speeding up technologically the systems need to speed up so how are you guys adapting to this yeah, definitely. Um, so we're entering a really interesting era of time where previously a lot of the limiting factor was the technology itself. And as that's evolved, especially as rapidly as, as it has in, say, the last 10 years, 20 years, um, we're starting to reach this point where the limiting factor isn't the technology, but it's the human's ability to use it. And so that's where we kind of come in and start doing analysis. We start doing um, experimentation and see what's going on, what are the human factors that are limiting what we're trying to accomplish, um, even if it's something that is just human nature, like being tired or scared or um, any of those things. I know our CEO likes to talk about the folks that are at the pointy end of the stick, um, that you experience a lot of human emotion at the, the pointy end of the stick um, in the defense world. If you're being shot at, there's a lot of other things you're focused on besides trying to get to that one little menu or drop down. Um, and so as we're doing research and looking at how humans are interacting with different things, where we're kind of heading um, is getting towards the ability to simulate human performance and take the research on human perception, cognition, and physiology and build digital humans that we're able to perform that testing on. Um, and for a long time, we've had that ability for um, putting mannequins into CAD models and evaluating simple things like reach and vision, um, but we're starting to get further and further with um, the ability to do cognitive research on that. Wow. It's so fascinating to just think about how many factors come into play, like you said, just driving a car. Mm -hmm. um, so back to space, because <laughs> we are all fascinated with space. This is Cool Science Radio. You talk about the issues of relieving yourself. What are some of the other human challenges that, it, that are involved in going into space? Weightlessness, um, anti-gravity is a really interesting one and the, the effect it has on the human body. I know exercise is a really big thing that is encouraged in space as you start to lose muscle tone and bone density. Um, there's a lot of that um, taken into account um, as well as the some of the things that I was talking about like reach and vision. Um, your ability to reach for things is altered in an anti-gravity state and as your body starts to adapt over a six month period, a nine month period in space, um, that starts to change. Um, the uh, just a general ability to move. You have to kind of push mm -hmm. off of different things. You're floating around um, and making sure that you're able to interact with the space um, and get where you are. I know um, we were talking earlier about space camp and um, there were some really interesting uh, things that happened when I was in a, a space shuttle simulator where we're having to reach over each other and those are really interesting things to think about where you're like, in an, a real anti-gravity situation, you'd be floating around trying to reach over a person, and it's not necessarily the best place to put a button or something like that. 
Wait a minute, space camp? Tell us a little <laughs> bit about this. Isn't the space camp that you went to when you were in eighth grade, right? Yeah, it was actually sixth grade. It oh. was. <laughs> yeah. And you were in an anti-gravity situation? Uh, we weren't. Um, it was just a on on Earth um, shuttle situation. Still experiencing full gravity, um, and even that was difficult. So I can't imagine being in space and being in anti-gravity, trying to accomplish the same things. Yeah, absolutely. And Ben, your experience? Yeah, um, <laughs> space camp is actually the reason why I got into this field. Um, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Florida, uh, watching space shuttle launches, I thought I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, and then the movie Apollo 13 came out, and I'm like, oh. Mission controllers were the real heroes, right? They're solving the problems that those astronauts are experiencing and, and saving the day. So I thought I wanted to be a mission controller. And then I went to space camp and I learned about all the challenges Lauren was just talking about, living and working in space. Uh, the first American spacewalk was uh, Ed White and, and he almost didn't make it back in the capsule just because of the bulkiness of a spacesuit and the lack of handholds to help him move around on the outside of the, of the spacecraft. Um, and so I realized like, oh, you have to really rethink every part of you know just your daily life and activities of daily living for space and if the engineers do a really good job solving the problems and designing a really effective solution to begin with you don't need heroes in mission control because everything's going to go smoothly and that's really kind of what drove me towards uh towards this career was learning about human factors at space camp so what was your degree in so my undergraduate degree is human factors engineering, and oh. my master's is in human systems integration. Yeah, it, it turned out to be a perfect field for me because um, I, I have that kind of systems thinking approach where I'm understanding all the different pieces and how they, they fit together. But the part that really does fascinate me is that human interaction part of it and how does the human fit into this larger system. Well, I know that you guys, you know, you work with space, you work with NASA, but you also do work with railroads. And we forget that rail lines are one of the most the original transportation systems and we take them for granted and it's a very complex web of moving pieces the trains the timing what is your role in working with railroad systems yeah so we have a small project with the federal railroad administration and railroads have been in the news quite a bit lately for you know the logistics and supply chains for safety issues and for generally all the effort that railroad companies are putting into optimizing their logistics infrastructure and their and their systems to you know get us uh, you know materials and um, and products quickly and efficiently, and the the work that we're doing is about the user interface for the operator and the locomotive. Um, you know, trains seem really simple, right? They go on tracks, you go, you stop, but they're actually really really complex because you're managing a very very long train where you can't see the back and you don't necessarily know what's happening all the way in the back of your miles-long train. You're dealing with terrain with varying quality of tracks and things that might be on the tracks, um, and you're managing multiple locomotives interspersed with many, many cars um, and managing a lot of different components there. Um, and so the way the locomotives are, are laid out today, they have a lot of different systems that don't talk to each other. And so the, the operator is looking at these different systems to see what the train is doing to manage the, the power plants and the braking systems and trying to optimize for fuel use and keep a schedule and uh, keep an eye on all the railroad signals and make sure that they're where they're supposed to be at all times. Um, and, and it's really, really complex. And right now the user has to look at different systems, integrate the information in their head, and then make decisions and interface with the system in order to um, you know, uh, command the system and control the, the train. Um, and so where our effort is to understand all these different pieces of information that the user needs, bring them together in a single user interface that takes disparate pieces of information and turns it into real knowledge and information for the user so they can focus on the overall bigger picture of what the train is doing and how they need to interact with it rather than focused on finding all these little pieces of information from across the train systems, integrating it, and then having to make that decision. Um, and so it's something that on a routine basis these uh, train operators can do every day, right? This is what they're trained for. Uh, but when you get to an anomalous situation where things are going wrong, or maybe they're just fatigued, or there's something unusual about the situation, a, a track is closed and they're, they're on a route that wasn't what they planned, um, any sort of these anomalous situations can throw a real wrench into things, and that's when you get kind of safety issues and concerns. And so uh, reducing the human's need to, uh, to do this tedious work and helping them make the right decisions uh, can really enhance the effectiveness of the train operations as well as safety. Well, Gary, tell us about, in addition to the rail lines and NASA, let's add another component into this. You guys also work with polar communications, satellites around polar regions. 
what can you tell us about that? That's a fascinating thing because I was reading about how it's more secure to have satellites around polar polar regions. Or Ben, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah. So we did a, a project um, for a ground control station for uh, satellite systems. Um, and it's, again, it's another area where you think you just kind of put a satellite up and it goes and it does its little communication relay job. Um, but there's a lot of satellites up there. Uh, the DOD and civil agencies are monitoring um, where all these satellites are at any given time. And they're um, doing traffic control, right? They're moving satellites around to avoid collisions. They're managing what frequencies the satellites are communicating on. They're doing health checks and adapting if a satellite goes down. How do we provide coverage? You know, what, what other satellites do we have that can provide coverage for that area? And uh, it's really complex, uh, managing all these different or orbits, all these different uh, communication capabilities that are, that are on orbit. And so again, helping the users visualize that in 3D space and then make good decisions, make the best decisions uh, that maximize their mission effectiveness. That is so interesting. I, I think in my next life, I want to come back as Ben Schwartz. <laughs> I agree. And I think you have a really enviable job. <laughs> um, Gary, let's talk to you a little bit about the various types of contracts that you get. I mean, it sounds, it all sounds like, you know, DOD and NASA and railways, but are there other contracts that you get that you want to tell us about? Yeah. So I, I put our customers in three broad buckets, right? There's the stuff where we're working directly for the government. And there are uh, the systems commands, uh, Naval Aviation, NAVAIR uh, Systems Command. We do work directly for them, designing uh, software that helps do mission planning, uh, both on carrier strike wings and on submarines. Um, we also work as a subcontractor under a number of companies. So you asked what what do we actually build? We don't bend metal, yeah. right? But somebody's going to deliver a system and it has to be able to fit the user's needs. So we want to get in uh, early in their design cycle so that we can help them make the right design choices before they're, they're actually bending metal and spending a lot more uh, resources. And then the third bucket that I tend to put our customers in is the B2B, the, the business to business side of it. So there's a company that will be out there that has an idea um, but it's not fully fleshed out. They don't have a government customer yet. They don't have a contract yet, but we're going to work with them so that when they do bring it, um, they have a better chance of being, being selected and down-selected for uh, eventual fielding, wherever that may be. So in the whole field of human factor engineering, how many companies out there do what you do, and what do you, who are your competitors? There are uh, a number of them, but but they're also really relatively small. Like I, like I said earlier, um, in the commercial space, a lot of companies bring this in. It's an internal, intuitive element of their of their business process. They know that it needs to be done because they're not going to be successful uh, if it isn't. The way that uh, military systems are designed and built, it's a lot more disparate. So. Frequently, we are spending time uh, helping the government customer understand that they have a challenge before we can tell them about how we're the solution to their challenge, as do most of our competitors. And they're all, you know, roughly the same size because most of us are not, like I said, bending metal. All right. So as we go out and we're looking for products that are designed for human capabilities, Lauren, what would be the one thing that we should look for when looking at a product or a, or a system or a software that best suits a human need? Yeah, so I think this is um, actually kind of great because it's a little bit um, intuitive, it's kind of obvious, and this gets back all the way into when early humans were first forming tools. Um, they, they did a little bit of human factors engineering. They were like, how can I pick up this rock and use it as a tool and what's the most comfortable for my hand? If I hit something with it, is it going to cut my hand? Maybe I'll pick up the rounder rock. So as you're looking at different things, Home Depot is a great place to do this at or any hardware store, um, is uh, just looking at like a hammer. Is it gripping? It, does the grip look like it'll fit my hand? Um, you can look at your car. This is There's evidence of this everywhere. And the kind of technical term for it we call it is uh, visual affordance. There's a great example um, that's given in a lot of textbooks of uh, the push-pull door. I know we've all walked into a door thinking that it's going to be a push door when it's a pull door. Um, and it's because when we look at it, there's the visual affordance that tells us this is a push door because somebody put a push handle on it but made it a pull door. Um, and so that's something that you can kind of look for um, is when you're looking at something 
and you think, oh, this is the way it's going to work, is it actually going to work the way that you think it is? And if so, that's probably a human factors issue. So interesting. You must go through life just, it, it's hard. Once yeah. you start <laughs> noticing, it's hard to stop noticing. Yeah. Sure. Well, what an interesting business. We're so lucky that we have Monterey Technologies based here in Park City. And thanks to Lauren Rohde, Ben Schwartz, and Gary Loberg, to all of you for coming in today. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. The University of Utah is known for their developments in computer science, genetics, bioengineering, and so much more. But getting these discoveries and technologies out into the real world with commercial applications can be a challenge. Enter the Pivot Center, an organization that serves as a, as a catalyst for economic development and technology commercialization through connecting the University of Utah's faculty and inventors with investors and entrepreneurs in Utah. Here to tell us more about the Pivot Center is Dr. Aaron Rothwell, Vice President for Research at the University of Utah. Aaron, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Well, thank you for having me. Before we started, Lynn and I, again, both you, uh, we're both U of U alumni, were commenting that we had never heard of this program or this, this department. You have over 330 startups that you've helped launch, over 100 licenses, uh, li technologies that you can license. Tell us about the Pivot Center and how this got started. Um, well, first of all, <clears throat> let me give you a little background of how the Pivot Center now reports to me. Um, so I am the Vice President of Research. Um, I've been in this position now for five years. I was interim for a year and a half. Um, I'm also a professor in the School of Medicine and in the Department of OBGYN, and I'm an active NIH researcher as myself. So the VPR, Vice President of Research Office, we oversee 16 different units of research. Um, I would say, pause, wait. We oversee 16 different units across the research enterprise, right? From human subjects protections, environmental health and safety, responsible conduct of research, foreign influence, and of course, tech transfer. Um, <clears throat> something I do wanna share on the radio um, is to really highlight I would say how big our research enterprise is and how it feeds into the technology transfer um, component. So the University of Utah, we just announced, reached a new high of $768 million in research awards. We are on target to hit a billion dollars. That contributed um, last year almost $250 million in wages across the state, $350 million in indirect and direct labor income, $350 or three, 35 million in state and local taxes and over 10,000 employees are employed by research, right? From federal and non-federal. In addition to that, our tech transfer office, the Pivot Center, we have almost 22 million in licensing revenue. We had uh, last year, 18 licenses issued and 122 patents issued. Um, and we, we had five startups, which is tends to be a little low for us. We always hit around eight or nine lately, but as you can see, not only is the tech transfer an economic driver for the state, so is the research enterprise. And technology transfer, anything that's coming out of there, those startup companies, they all begin with discoveries that start in research. So when I became the, the VPR, President Taylor Randall, um, who's I think starting his third year, he's extremely visionary. He moved the tech transfer office under me in the past five months, partly because, you know, in 2017, we were number one in the country. And, and you know, and it's, you know, it's kind of hard to talk about, but in the past five years, we've dropped to almost 40th. So what happened? Like what caused this, I would say, shocking decline? But I also kind of look at it as an opportunity because technology transfer is notoriously complex, right? And it's difficult. So even though you're saying we launched 330 companies, right, since our inception of creating the tech transfer office, you know, not a lot of those companies stay, right? Startups have a high failure rate. So we are really re-looking at how we approach tech transfer. So we have new leadership in the Pivot Center. Um, we've hired Bruce Hunter, and we're also dividing the Pivot Center into two entities. Um, so Aaron, let me jump in on this. I've got a question for you. And I know a lot of our listeners probably have the same question. What is tech transfer? Well, tech transfer is taking discoveries that are created from research into the market commercialization. 
And we are required by the Bayh-Dole Act in 1980 that universities are mandated to commercialize their discoveries. So research that is funded by public dollars, right, that should be returned to our society, right? And I think that's really what drives our success in technology transfer is that we have an amazing group of scientists and researchers, you know, they're really focused on, you know, improving, you know, the lives and well-being of every Utah. And because they are so successful, they're they're creating products or inventions that are marketable. So Aaron, it seems to me um, some years ago, gosh, maybe seven, eight years ago, we interviewed the department at the University of Utah, who I think was doing this. So has the has the whole institution been renamed to Pivot? It used to be called, and I'm forgetting what it was called. So um, the Pivot Center went through five different names. It was the okay. Transfer Office, it was Technology Venture Office, um, and the Pivot Center. So, and to be honest, now that we're splitting it into two units, we're dropping the pivot name again. I mean, come on, we just got to keep going with the. Oh theme. man, I just I just learned the acronym. <laughs> I know. Well, nobody understands what pivot means. It's it's actually not a a good title for technology transfer. So the first, you know, what we're doing for the technology transfer, right? So what is what does a tech transfer office do, right? So we got to get back to our core fun functions, like of excellent customer service. So we go in and you know, we have a staff of 27 that go in and help manage disclosures that are happening from faculty within the university. We also manage intellectual property, patents. And I would say the number one, I would say uh, core service that our tech transfer office um, has is faculty engagement. We've kind of declined in that. And so that is a new goal um, that we are gonna be targeting and improving on with this, this new restructure. You know, it's very interesting because, you know, it's the university down the road. I think we take for granted what goes on at the University of Utah, and it is an incredible institution. And, you know, I think people out there in the world think that there's this big separation between academia and industry. And what the University of Utah is doing is, you know, melding those two in the biggest of ways. You know, if you look at the companies that have been launched out of the University of Utah, you know, talking a long time ago, starting with like Atari and and yeah. Adobe and even Pixar, it has long been an institution that's not just, you know, stuck in academia. It's hugely innovative. What do you think is the reason for that? That's a great question. Um, and I, I really believe, you know, first of all, the state of Utah has one of the strongest economies in the country. Um, and the reason uh, we're strong is because we have a, you know, an entrepreneurial spirit. And so when you come to the University of Utah, because we, you know, we are internationally known, uh, we were just ranked number eight by the Wall Street Journal for top 10 public universities. It is that entrepreneurial culture, right? So now that we've kind of are getting our tech transfer, I would say core services, you know, back to where they need to be around excellence and customer service, we're launching a new commercialization office. Um, so we just recently secured $10 million um, and we're going to start injecting that into our research community around proof of concept, seed grant funding, so that we could de-risk technologies so that they're more favorable for venture um, capitalists to come in and um, invest. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, our guest is Parkite, Dr. Erin Rothwell. She is the Vice President for Research excuse me, at the University of Utah Pivot Center. Well, Aaron, how does the Pivot Center create that bridge between the research and the technologies and the developments that are at the U and then what we see in the commercial market? So that's a great question. So the way that they, uh, first of all, connect those bridges is you have to have a relationship with our faculty, right? You gotta be out in the halls, hearing what they're doing and creating that networks. At the same time, right, we have to have engagement with our broader business community. And so we do a lot of events with our business community and, and, and in between we connect um, industry partners with emerging technologies. And it's kind of a matchmake game, but with our new commercialization office uh, that we are creating, which should be launched later this fall, we're gonna make that even easier, right? So we're gonna have a day of here, come pitch your idea and we'll have certain 
business leaders, venture funds. Um, and if you meet certain standards, right, like you have your IP terms right, from, from the University of Utah, um, you have a rough business plan, right? And you have some preliminary data, right? Which the U actually helps provide that type of funding and support. Then we could just see who, you know, let, let the market play, right? I think the University of Utah is, uh, has done well, but we can do, we can do a lot better. And the way we can do a lot better is by getting out of the way and creating direct connections from the business community to those early stage funders. Well, and I'm reading through your site and seeing that it's, you really do help the original researchers as well, helping them with market research or grant proposals. It seems like most of your work is done with people that already have technologies that they've already created. But looking at this website with the news saying that you you help people create, you know, find grant money, what are the other ways that you help researchers that maybe don't have a product yet? So if you do have a novel idea, right? So we have the Ascender grant program. And again, we have this new influx of $10 million that we will be um, implementing under a new associate vice president for commercialization. And so again, if you have an idea and you can kind of pass the, the test where there's the potential market, market, you know, ability, a market place for it, you'll get the funding, right? Uh, in the past, it's been really difficult, right? A lot of our success has been because our researchers were just driven, right? We have a huge campus. We have over, you know, we just hit almost $770 million in research awards. That's a thousands of investigators. And so one center can't do it all. So a lot of our success has just been driven by inventors taking the initiative. Like if you look at the company recursion, right? That came out of the University of Utah. And that was uh, the current CEO is a U grad, Chris uh, Gibson, and a former U professor, Dean Lee, right? And they just got a $50 million investment from NVIDA. So, I mean, that's one example. And then, of course, you have BlackRock, um, which has been around for a long time, Florian um, Salzbacher, right? Where you're, you're looking at brain computer interfaces and how that's able to allow people who've either suffered an injury or don't have an injury and have some disabilities to use their mind to drive, to write, right? And, and then of course, I love this one, the Tetra ski, right? That is, oh my goodness, right? I, my kids are on the, the Park City ski team, right? It's this high-tech adaptive alpine ski that allows people with severe cord injuries or other types of complex disabilities to come back to the slopes, right? You know, we have the National Ability Center and you usually see people kind of going down the hill and someone's following them with ropes. Um, but this allows the skier to use a joystick or their breath to control their turns and their speed on the slopes. Yes, it's incredible. We interviewed on this show the the innovator behind the Tetra Ski and just, the, you know, whether you give a couple of puffs or you can actually suck it from the tube and that will direct the Tetra Ski in another direction. I mean, it's it's incredible. And by the way, thank you for providing so many opportunities for, for us to do interviews on this show from the, the University of Utah. Really, the possibilities are endless. And I'm curious, Erin, about your background because I can see from your educational history that you are getting kind of sucked into this really exciting this innovation and it's tell us how you got to where you are right now. Yeah. So I, I actually, you know, I came out here for my PhD and, and, you know, met my, my husband. And so of course nobody wants to leave park city once they get here. And so, you know, I really wanted to run a college student development program, but after my PhD, I ended up doing a postdoc in clinical trials and public health. And that really just, you know, set my, my career and, in a research intensive environment. Um, so I'm, I also then went to the medical college of Wisconsin and got my um, certification in bioethics, right? So a lot of my research is around the ethical, legal, and social implications of genomics and reproductive healthcare. So it, that has been ex exciting, but because of my ethics background, I got involved with responsible conduct of research, integrity, compliance, and um, I became the associate vice president for integrity and compliance. And, and from there, I just moved up the ladder. Fascinating. I'm wondering, 
say I'm an 18-year-old again. Oh, to be 18 again. Uh, and I'm a, I'm going to enter the University of Utah, you know, next fall at, as a biomedical engineering student, say. You know, we've talked a lot about researchers, but what is that incoming freshman going to feel like and going to be sort of, <laughs> I wanted to use the word indoctrinated, that's not right. But, you know, in terms of being told, this is what you can achieve at this institution. What goes on along the way? So that's a great question, Lynn. And I would say this is what really distinguishes our institution from other institutions in the state, right? We are an R1 research intensive institution. So is the U Utah State University. But if you look at our research portfolio, right, we have significant funding from the National Institute of Health, Department of Energy, right? And because of that funding, we're able to create these, you know, research labs for students to come in and have real world experience. And so if you were going to be coming into, let's say, the College of Engineering at the University of Utah, my advice would be, yes, show up for class, but two, get in a lab, right? And you can see individuals that do uh, have research experiences are more likely to graduate. They're more likely to go to grad school and they're more likely to have a higher uh, wage when they graduate. So one of the most interesting things that I, I think some of our engineering students have, have done is the FORGE project. Are you familiar with that? The geothermal pro project down in Milford, Utah. So we just successfully linked two wells, the first in the world, where we're able to communicate between the two wells, right? Because geothermal, the water goes down, it's heated naturally from the earth. But to link two wells, right, you can. And some of our buildings on campus are geothermal powered because of that research. We had Secretary Granholm um, here uh, last semester. Well, again, in perusing your extensive web website, the Pivot Center isn't just about working with researchers and scientists. You guys also have a entrepreneurs in residence, executives in residence, mentors in residence. So you really do work with, say, an entrepreneur in how to expand their or even start their own business. How can someone get involved in a program like this? So first of all, you know, if you are an experienced um, entrepreneur with success, right, easily reach out to the Pivot Center. These are paid, you know, opportunities where you're guiding faculty who have made a disclosure um, and, you know, have significant IP uh, and they want to start a company. And so you provide those types of mentoring experiences to our faculty. But as I said, um, this the whole tech transfer office is being completely restructured, right? We are going to have a commercialization arm and then we're going to have our core tech transfer functions. The commercialization arm, we're even going to, we're going to, instead of having entrepreneurs and residencies, we're creating a U of U venture fund and actually we're creating several of them where when people have an idea or if they have an invention, they're going to get direct access to the venture fund and they're going to vet their idea and they're going to be able to get funding as they go along and they continue to hit milestones. So I think that is going to be one of the unique changes that we can make in the next three to six months to really accelerate commercialization. So if I'm a, an entrepreneur and I have a technology idea, but I don't have the, the experience and education to actually create what I'm thinking about. Could I come through the Pivot Center and say, look, I need somebody in with this sort of discipline to create this technology for me? That is definitely a possibility, right? Again, it's the if it's a viable idea that has strong market value, then we could potentially have some funding. That's not technically how it works, right? The way it's been driven is through research discoveries and linking them to the, the the business community. But it has happened, right? A number of people have approached, let's say, some of our biomedical engineers and saying, I have this idea for this device. Uh, can I work with you? And we co-create it. That is definitely, we can do that type of matchmaking. But you can tell that, you know, this is tricky. Our, our number one goal is to try to get as many shots on goals for startups as possible because they're so hard to make it high failure rate. Erin, you have a big job. You're overseeing as vice president of research, did you say 16 different programs? And this is just one of them. You mentioned one other, but what else do you oversee? 
<laughs> I have to break out the list. Uh, well, the reason this uh, the tech transfer is being split into two is to have an associate vice president oversee this tech transfer process because it's so important and to innovate yes. on it. We haven't really made changes. But the other units, right? So the Institutional Review Board, Office of Sponsored Projects, Foreign Influence, Conflict of Interest, Office of Comparative Medicine, Environmental Health Safety. We also have our own data analytics group. You know, I can I can go down the list, but it, when you think about the research enterprise, we really need to install early on this spirit of commercialization earlier in the research pipeline, right? Right from discovery, because a lot of times scientists are like, I, I, you know, they're just committed to the science. They want to cure cancer, right? Like Robin Shaw, who just came up with this brand new gene therapy where uh, for cardiomyopathy and the clinical trials, you know, are showing that in one dose, you can stop heart failure, right? That's wow. a huge significant change. And he wasn't thinking about commercialization. He was thinking, how do I help make people healthy, right? How do I, right? How do I help uh, deal with this disease? So how do we inject that the commercialization, I would say, thought process earlier? And because a lot of things that come out of the lab are not market ready. And so there's a lot of work that has to go on. So if we can interject that earlier, then I think we can even maximize more impact. Well, and I would imagine that for a researcher, like you say, this this person who came up with the gene therapy for the heart is they want to focus on research and to just even think about, you know, they, they're probably not business-minded people. They're researchers. They're steeped in science. And to if they know that they have support in intellectual property, in commercialization and, and innovation and all this, doesn't it free them up so much more to do what they do best? And and you just nailed it on the head. That's exactly what the Pivot Center does, right? We provide those services for investigators, right? We pay the patent costs. We manage the you know the disclosure, the IP, right? Um, but we need to make the process even easier, right? We have to. Another thing too is a lot of times when people disclose, you know, there could it could be considered that, it, oh, this doesn't, this doesn't meet IP standards. So, you know, the current policies for the institution is that all IP is owned by the institution. So we're actually in the process of changing that. So if we don't move on a technology, right, within 30 or 60 days, we're going to return the IP back to the, the inventor for them, uh, for her or him to pursue their own commercialization if they want, instead of holding it. It's such an amazing support system that you provide all of the great research coming out of the University of Utah. Well, um, Dr. Aaron Rothwell, thank you again for joining us and sharing this important work that, that the Pivot Center is doing and how it's going to be evolving in helping the researchers come up with their brilliant discoveries and advancing technologies. Something always is, is always happening at the U and it's fascinating to see what happens just down in the valley. Again, Dr. Aaron Rothwell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.